Last time we spoke about the romantic love story between Vinegar Joseph Stilwell and Chang Peanut Kai-shek. The men would eventually see eye to eye, and the fruition of this was to utilize the hump for supplies and work on reopening the Burma campaign. We also talked about the Japanese march on Kokoda, and the Australian Papuan defenders who met them there. The battle for Kokoda was brutal, but in the end, the Japanese numbers won out and the Allies were forced to back off and regroup. Yet the New Guinea campaign was just one of two major operations going on in the South Pacific. General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Ernest King had reached agreements and one of them would result in a campaign to seize the Solomon Islands. While the Australians were getting their taste of island-hopping warfare on Green Hell, the Americans were just beginning to get theirs, and one of these islands would soon be referred to as the Island of Death by Starvation, Guadalcanal. This episode is Operation Watchtower. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just need to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment on episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please... Subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you were still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where you can find a few episodes going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way till the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look and it'll mean a lot to me. It's been eight months since the outbreak of the Pacific War, after so many defeats at the hands of the Empire of Japan, and a few bold victories against them, it was finally time for the Allies to launch their own offensive to take back territory from the Japanese. The start of this was going to be the Solomon Islands. This was not just going to be the first Allied offensive in the Pacific War, it was also going to be the first American amphibious invasion in decades. The amphibious invasion of the Solomons would cement the importance of the American Marines for generations to come. Now in the last few episodes, we've dwelled into the origins of the Solomon Islands offensive. General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Ernest King fought tooth and nail against another, competing for resources and to take control over the offensives that would begin in the Pacific. King wanted to first liberate the Solomon Islands, before hitting the important Japanese base at Rubal. MacArthur, being MacArthur, wanted to take control of such operations because parts of the Solomon Islands fell within his southwest Pacific area. By July the 2nd, George Marshall was able to cool things over and they reached a compromise. I know this might be the third time I've had to read this to you, but it is very important so I'm going to read it again. For the seizing and occupying of New Britain, New Ireland, and the New Guinea area. Task 1. Seizure and occupation of the Santa Cruz Islands, Tulagi, and adjacent positions. Task 2. The seizure and occupation of the remainder of the Solomon Islands, and of Lei, Salamawa, and the northeast coast of New Guinea. Task number three, the seizure and occupation of Rubal and adjacent positions in New Guinea and the New Ireland area. The orders were distributed on July the 2nd. Task one and the seizure and occupation of Santa Cruz Islands, Tulagi and adjacent positions would remain under the authority of Admiral Nimitz and his sub-theater commander, Admiral Gormley. Task two and three, involving the capture of the Japanese airfields on the northeast coast of New Guinea, followed by the seizure and occupation of Rubal, well, that one would be General MacArthur's show. In order to keep Task 1 entirely within Gormley's domain, the line borders of the South Pacific and the Southwest Pacific areas were moved just one degree westward to the latitude of 159 east, skirting the western end of Guadalcanal. 
So for the Americans, they were able to work out how they would be tackling the operations at a macro level. What is important is that the compromise allowed King and the Pacific Fleet to lead the initial assault on Tulagi and the Southern Solomons, while MacArthur and his Southwest Pacific area would command the subsequent offensives against the northeastern coast of New Guinea, the Northern Solomons, and Rabaul. Now, Admiral Gormley and General MacArthur met for a very hasty conference in Melbourne to discuss the operations. They cited a lack of trained amphibious troops, a shortage of adequate shipping and insufficient land-based bombers and fighters. They also noted that with the number of Japanese air reconnaissance in the region, it was highly unlikely they would be able to achieve surprise. Admiral King was disappointed with Gormley and simply pissed off with MacArthur. This would prompt King to say to Marshall, I take note, about three weeks ago, MacArthur said that he could push right through to Rabaul. Confronted with the concrete aspects of the task, he now feels that he not only cannot undertake this extended operation, but not even the Telagi operation. In the end, King refused to entertain their pleas for more time but he did offer more naval support in the form of a carrier task force built around the carriers Saratoga, Wasp, and Enterprise. Now let's talk a bit about what is the Solomon Islands. To the north of Australia is New Guinea, and just due east of its center is the Bismarck Archipelago, whose main islands are New Ireland and New Britain. Extruding from the northern end of New Britain is the Gazelle Peninsula, housing Rabaul, the best harbor in the entire region. There are 640 miles separating Rabaul from Truk, the main Japanese base in the Central Pacific, and the coast of New Guinea is only another 440 miles farther south. Stretching southeast from New Ireland and New Britain are the Solomons, a group of several hundred islands in various sizes. The main islands are Bougainville, Cozuel, Santa Isabel, Malieta, in the north, with Vela La Vela, New Georgia, the Russells, Guadalcanal, and San Cristobal in the south. At their northern tip, the Solomons are about 5 degrees south of the equator. They are largely volcanic in origin. They have a dry season from April to October, and a wet season around November to March. Now, Rabaul is very significant, apart from its magnificent harbor, it held the only terrain amenable to airfield development, but in the Solomons, there were potential airfield sites also. One existed at Buka, off the northern end of Bougainville, and another lay in the northern coast of Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal is a name you most likely have heard often in reference to the Pacific War, but what exactly is it? It is 90 miles long and around 25 miles in width, give or take. It holds a mountain chain in the center of the island, with the highest peaks reaching over 7,000 feet. On its southern portion is a ton of shielding reefs, very unfriendly for ships. Apart from the mountains, the majority of Guadalcanal is erosion, contorted, ridgelines, cross-hatched in damp and humid rainforests. The northern part holds sandy beaches around Oala and the Manacao River. There are also coconut plantations and numerous creeks, lagoons, and fords going inland. In 1941, Australia held control over New Guinea, Bougainville, and Buka. The remainder of the Solomons fell under the British Solomon Islands Protectorate, led by the resident commissioner, William Marchand, who presided over a population of 500 Europeans, 200 Chinese, and over 95,000 natives. The natives are Melanesians, a dark-skinned people speaking over 40 different dialects. Interesting note, quite a few of them have blonde hair. It is believed to be the result of sun and salt whitening, high fish intake, and mixed breeding with Europeans. They have survived for centuries hunting, farming, and fishing. The colonists of the early 20th century only added slight economic development. The principal development was copra and coconut plantations. Now, the British and Australians did not provide a ton of defense for the region, allowing the Japanese an easy hand seizing Laua Salamaua in New Guinea and Tulagi, 
Buka, and Bougainville in the Solomons. In 1942, a 24-man detachment of Australians manned an unfinished airstrip at Buka, and a similar-sized team operated four PBYs at Tulagi, and a very small garrison of local inhabitants acted as coast watchers. These coast watcher groups grew after World War I, having acquired some experience from all the Pacific raiding traffic. By 1939, they grew to about 800 people, mainly local officials. Also, by 1939, local commander Eric Felt took command of the organization. He provided a crucial link between the Australian Navy and the Coast Watchers. When the war came, he joined the office of the Director of Naval Intelligence and took charge of intelligence for New Guinea and the Solomons. He expanded the organization and supervised 64 stations and the distribution of new teleradio equipment. The Coast Watchers were never conceived as a espionage network, but after the Japanese occupation, things changed quite radically. Any civilian on a Japanese-controlled island who used a radio to transmit intelligence data was basically a spy and subject to summary executions if caught. Felt had hoped many of them would still make reports, and he was certainly not disappointed. The natives proved themselves enormous assets to the war effort. Of course, there were those who immediately switched sides to the Japanese, but overall, the vast majority remained loyal to the Allied cause. The Melanesians served willingly as porters for the Coast Watchers' radios, stores, and some voluntarily gathered valuable intel during hazardous spying missions to Japanese bases. To be very frank, they were the unsung heroes who deserve more commemoration. Now, many stations remained operational during the Japanese occupation of the Solomons, and six of these became quite crucial. On the northern tip of Bougainville, near the Buka Passage, was Jack Reed, an assistant district officer with 12 years' experience on the islands. He also had been on Bougainville since November of 1941. On a hill near Buen, at the southern tip of Bougainville, was Paul Mason, who had spent 20 years in the area. District Officer Donald Kennedy was at a plantation at Segi Point on New Georgia. Three stations were on Guadalcanal. Lieutenant Donald McFarlane, an Australian naval reservist called up in 1941 for his job as a buyer of dry goods for a store, he worked with Kenneth Hay, a tubby plantation manager. When the Japanese invaded, they moved their HQ to Gold Ridge, about 15 miles inland. At the western end of the island was Ashton Rhodes, the manager of the Burns Phillips Plantation at Lavaro. Lastly, at Alawa, along the eastern portion of the northern coastal plain was District Officer Martin Clemens, who maintained order in the area. He knew the Japanese would come around the Aloha area because it was the local seat of government, so he prepared a fallback position in the hills to maintain observation of the coast and retain contact with his native supporters. Now, in order to be able to carry out Task 1, the seizure and occupation of the Santa Cruz Islands to Lagi and adjacent positions, the American commanders mounted three faint attacks, one of which did not go very well. In the northern Pacific, a group of cruisers and destroyers conducted a bombardment of Kiska on August the 7th, after a fog had thwarted them causing collisions amongst their own warships. The light cruiser Boys aborted her raid on the Japanese picket line just east of the home islands. Stormy seas nearly terminated the 2nd Raider Battalion's hit-and-run attack on Mackin on August 17th in a terrible fiasco that might have included the capture of FDR's son, James. The Americans hoped the British Eastern Fleet in the Indian Ocean would stage their own faint attack, but the Royal Navy stated they were reluctant to expose their carriers. In the end, the British contributed a small demonstration in the Indian Ocean, but this all amounted to no real deception. Incredibly, Guadalcanal had still not been earmarked as a target. On June the 27th, Nimitz ordered the seizure of an airfield site in conjunction with an assault against Tulagi, but he specified no location. Rear Admiral Richmond Turner recommended adding Guadalcanal to the operation for an airfield site on July the 3rd, but on the afternoon of July the 5th, 
American radio intelligence concluded the Japanese had landed airfield construction troops already on Guadalcanal. That same day, Admirals King and Nimitz temporarily deleted the Santa Cruz Islands from Task 1 and changed them for Guadalcanal. From the very beginning, they sought to use the 1st Marine Division to hit Guadalcanal, the new target being codenamed Cactus. On August the 7th, Admiral Gormley had under his command 282 aircraft, both land-based and seaplanes, led by Rear Admiral John McCain, a wizened and shrewd 58-year-old aviator whose bulging jaw gave him a strong resemblance to Popeye. While this seems like a formidable number, it should be noted it included many biplane antiques, such as the Royal New Zealand Air Force, Singapore Flingboats, and Marine SBC-4 dive bombers. He had around 70 P-39s and P-40s, 49 Wildcats, 32 B-17s, 28 PBYs, and 18 Hudsons. A strong need of airfields complemented the lack of aircraft. In May, Admiral Nimitz approved the occupation of Espiritu Santo, the closest island to Guadalcanal, that it could be seized. However, the Allies were unable to construct an airfield until there was an adequate garrison to defend it. Admiral Gormley declined to shift troops from rear bases for the purposes of Espiritu Santo because he feared for a lack of shipping and for exposing vital lines of communications to Australia. Espiritu Santo would become the first job in the South Pacific assigned to the newly arrived Seabees of the 3rd Naval Construction Battalion. The Seabees are, as countless professors had taught me back in university, the unsung heroes of the Pacific War. These construction units would go onto the islands and often under fire to construct airfields to assert air dominance in the area. Without them, the Allies would simply have a much, much more painful time. The Seabees would swarm, yes I made that pun, onto the island and begin to fell trees to construct the airfield and many fell to the unseen enemy, malaria. Medication and determination in equal doses would see the task accomplished, just in time for B-17s to land on an anointed day. Even with Espirito Santo's new base being 125 miles closer to the target area, there still remained a chronic shortage of planes, crews, and spare parts. During this entire time, radio cryptanalysts, codenamed Ultra, were hard at work deciphering the IGN's movements. By July the 3rd, they had identified the presence at Rabaul of the 8th Base Force, 25th Air Flotilla, the 5th Sasebo Special Naval Landing Force, 15 warships, and a dozen transports. There was a ton of radio messages revealing merchantmen from all over the Japanese Empire converging on Rabaul. There was also heavy traffic between the IJHQ at Rabaul and Davio, suggesting imminent troop movements. Ultra predicted this would be the 17th Army and that they would most likely move between July the 18th to the 19th. All of this indicated a giant Japanese operation in the South Pacific and Admiral King wanted to hit it first. Now after Midway, as I have said countless times, Operation FS was postponed and eventually cancelled. Another major issue was the loss of 400 carrier-based and land-based aircraft at Coral Sea and Midway combined. On June the 12th, the Imperial General Headquarters directed Hayakutake to mount an overland attack on New Guinea to take Port Moresby. Another change to the plans was to create the 8th Fleet. Its operational title was the Outer South Seas Force, which reflected its purpose, to guard the conquests in the South Pacific, while the 4th Fleet was titled the Inner South Seas Force. Guiding the new fleet was Vice Admiral Gunichi Mikawa, a very intelligent and soft-spoken sailor of broad experience, who held large confidence from the Naval General Staff. He had commanded the escort of Nagumo's carriers during their rampage from Pearl Harbor to the Indian Ocean Raid. His flagship was the heavy cruiser Chokai, and he would control Cruiser Division 6, which held Japan's four most senior heavy cruisers. He also had Cruiser Division 18, which held Japan's oldest light cruisers, two destroyer divisions, eight middle-aged destroyers, submarine squadron 7, and five other warships. 
Mikawa lacked jurisdiction over air units at Rabaul, however, which remained under Vice Admiral Nishizo Tsukahara, the commander of the 11th Air Fleet. On July the 21st, Mikawa expressed concern over the vulnerability of his area of command and requested more destroyers. Two days later, he predicted to the combined fleet that the Americans would descend upon Guadalcanal before the Japanese would be able to establish air bases there. This prediction apparently created no ripples at the Imperial General HQ, which firmly believed the Allies would mount no serious operations there before 1943. The Imperial General HQ also acknowledged reports of numerous American Marines being shipped to New Zealand, airfield construction, and increased radioactivity in the South Pacific. But they assumed this was just reinforcing the defense of Australia, and perhaps New Guinea. Gormley's New South Pacific Command completely eluded them. On July the 25th, Mikawa reached Truk, and there, one of his trusted staff officers, Commander Toshika Omoe, gave him a rundown of the situation in the South Pacific. It turned out the 17th Army was doing quite well in New Guinea, but he was completely unaware about the Solomons. The 25th Air Flotilla and the 8th Base Force were jointly charged with the local defense, completely neglecting to cooperate. Although an airfield on Guadalcanal would be ready for operation in early August, neither the 25th Air Flotilla nor its parent 11th Air Fleet knew where the aircraft would come from to occupy it. Mikawa understandably raised concerns about a possible Allied attack on Guadalcanal, but the 4th Fleet staff scoffed at this notion as being impossible. Mikawa then traveled to Rabaul by July the 30th, where the 8th Fleet staff was busy reinforcing operations to New Guinea. But Mikawa began to draw their attention yet again to Guadalcanal. Starting on July the 31st, every day for a week, B-17s of the 11th Bomb Group began softening up the campaign. On August the 5th, the 8th Fleet HQ grew concerned when the Special Duty Group, a radio intelligence unit at the Imperial HQ, suggested that the increased Allied radioactivity might mean there was an Allied operation about to begin in the South Seas area. The very next day, the native laborers on Guadalcanal, working on the airfield, all of a sudden fled into the jungle. The Japanese report dismissed this as just native feckleness. The 1st Marine Division, which would be making a ton of noise and glory in the South Pacific, was led by the new Major General Alexander Archer Vandegrift. He was 55 years old, a sturdy-built man with a hard jaw and a rather handsome face. He had a soft voice, carrying a Virginia drawl accent. His career spanned 34 years, and he radiated optimism. The 1st Marine Division had undergone simultaneous disintegration and reorganization three times in the past year. Vandegrift ruthlessly stripped elements of other divisions of their most experienced officers and NCOs to fill the 1st Marines to the brim with the best. This was the cream of the crop, as they say. The division would have a penelope of supporting units including one battalion each of light tanks and amphibian tractors. Most of the Marines' equipment tended to be a bit outdated. While the Army had the standardized and excellent M1 Garand semi-automatic rifle in 1936, the Marines would hit Guadalcanal carrying the M1903 Springfield bolt-action rifle, the same rifle many of their fathers had made famous in France in 1917, believe it or not. Vandegrift knew the division was short on readiness for combat, but General Thomas Holcomb, Commander of the Marine Corps assured him there would be no combat until January of 1943. The division's ranks rapidly swelled to full strength, divided almost entirely by two categories. 20-year-old youth who enlisted after Pearl Harbor. They were certainly the majority, but the minority group were veterans, nicknamed the Old Breed. Of their officers, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Griffith described them as such. First sergeants yanked off planks in navy yards, sergeants from recruiting duty, gunnery sergeants who had fought in France, Pernell privates, and disciplinary records a yard long. 
These were the professionals, the old breed of the United States Marines. Many had fought Cacos in Haiti, Bandidos in Nicaragua, and French, English, Italian, and American soldiers and sailors in every bar in Shanghai, Manila, Tsingtao, Tianjin, and Peking. They were the inveterate gamblers and accomplished scroungers who drank hair tonic in preference to post-exchange beer or horse piss, cursed with wonderful fluency and never went to chapel, the God Box, unless forced to. Many dipped snuff, smoked rank cigars, or chewed tobacco. The cigarettes were for women and children. They had little use for libraries or organized athletics. They could live on jerked goat, strong black coffee they called boiler compound, and hash cooked in a tin hat. Many wore expert badges with bars for proficiency in rifle, pistol, machine gun, hand grenade, auto rifle, motor, and bayonet. They knew their weapons. They knew their tactics. They knew they were tough. And they knew they were good. There were enough of them to leave in the division and to impart to the thousands of younger men a share. Had to be one of my favorite quotes to read in this entire series thus far. The first echelon of the division was the 5th Marines. The second was the 1st Marines, with their assistant divisional commander, Brigadier General William Rupertus. Now, if you haven't already listened to our special podcast interview with Rupertus's granddaughter, Amy Rupertus, who recently wrote the novel, Old Breed General, about her grandfather, I implore you to do so, as he was a fascinating character. He was the man who wrote The Rifleman's Creed, so if you've seen Full Metal Jacket, you can thank him. On June the 26th, Gormley summoned Vandegrift and told him they were going to seize Tulagi and its adjacent positions, such as Nidi and the Santa Cruz Islands. Vandegrift would have the 1st Raider Battalion, the 1st Parachute Battalion, and the 3rd Defense Battalion. D-Day was set for August the 1st, and Vandegrift had not even the vaguest idea of the Japanese forces present there. Urgent requests were sent to General MacArthur's intelligence officer, Colonel Charles Willoughby, whom ordered coverage of Guadalcanal and Tulagi. The reports were quite skimpy and full of errors, especially when it came to the estimates on Japanese strength. They thought around 150 enemy aircraft were present at Rabaul and Tulagi, whereas the actual total was closer to 100. They figured the garrison to be 8,400, but the actual count was around 3,457, of which 2,571 were on Guadalcanal. On July the 16th, Gormley issued his plan for landings in the Guadalcanal-Tulaki area, followed up by Nididi. Rear Admiral McCain would command Task Force 63, while Vice Admiral Frank Fletcher would command Task Force 61. The 1st Marines Division would split to make simultaneous attacks on Guadalcanal and Tulagi. The Guadalcanal group would be 11,300 men under the command of Vandegrift. Their principal objective was to take the airfield near Lunga Point. The second part of the division, 3,000 men, would be commanded by Brigadier General Rupertus to seize Tulagi and its twin islands of Gavitu and Tanambogo. On July the 26th, Admirals McCain, Kincaid, Turner, Crutchley, General Vandegrift, and Admiral Fletcher all met aboard the Saratoga for a pre-landing conference. Admiral Gormley was unable to attend this honestly very important meeting, so Fletcher had to lead it. Operation Watchtower was met with considerable lack of faith. Fletcher asked Turner how long it would take to unload everything for the operation, and Turner told him it was going to be about five days. Fletcher straight up told him after two days, the aircraft carriers would have to withdraw lest they be attacked. When Vandegrift heard this, he was enraged, and he said, The days of landing, a small number of marines, and leave were long done. Well, Fletcher compromised a bit, saying he would wait three days. When Gormley read the meeting minutes, he advised trying to land carrier planes right on a Guadalcanal if the airfield was ready. 
If it was not, they would try to protect the beachhead using McCain's Wildcats from Effayette. Now, they wanted to do a rehearsal for the landings at a place called Coro. The amphibious force discovered the reef conditions had made landings quite difficult, if not impossible, and it was particularly hazardous to landcraft, which were irreplaceable at this time. Admiral Turner elected to go ahead with the rehearsal, but after one-third of the Marines had landed, he stopped it. The transport crews gained valuable practice, but the multitude of failures was very sobering. A Marine officer recalled that the only time he had ever seen Vandegrift looking dejected during the entire campaign was at the rehearsals at Coro. In the waning hours of July the 31st, Operation Watchtower was launched. Now, just to sidetrack for a second, Admirals King and Gormley also called for an execution of diversionary attacks to lure the attention of the enemy away from the Solomon Islands. The British unsuccessfully carried out Operation Stab as a feint to drive away the Japanese attention from the South Pacific, and the Americans carried out two operations to lure the invaders away from the objective of Operation Watchtower. One of them would be the hit-and-run attack on Mackin Island, which would take place on August the 17th by the 2nd Raider Battalion. For that one, you will have to wait, but the other would be the first naval bombardment of Kiska in the Aleutian Islands. Now, the Americans had launched a dozen or so raids over Kiska in June, but as the Allies were trying to put the hurt down, the Japanese were reinforcing their position. On July the 5th, they tossed 1,200 troops onto the island of Attu and Kiska, alongside six midget subs and a construction battalion. Generals Buckner and Butler kept up the heat by bombing Agatu on July the 3rd, and sent patrols into the Bering Sea. They also sent submarines to harass the Japanese, and on July the 4th, the USS Triton managed to torpedo and sink the destroyer Inohi on July the 5th and the USS Growler snuck into Kiska Harbor and torpedoed three Japanese destroyers, damaging Shiranyuhi, Kazumi, and sinking Arai. Really good catch. Likewise, the Japanese sent their own raids. On July the 11th, they hit Umnak's Fort Glen. Then on July the 20th, they bombed the seaplane tender Gillis at Adux Kuluk Bay. The extreme weather proved disastrous to any offensives, and Admiral Theobald would have to relinquish his at-sea command of the North Pacific Force due to failing to carry out any real offensive against Kiska. On August the 3rd, Theobald was replaced with Rear Admiral William Smith, who immediately ordered a bombardment of Kiska to distract the Japanese from Operation Watchtower. Within mere hours, Smith departed Kodiak with heavy cruisers Indianapolis, Louisville, light cruisers Honolulu, St. Louis, Nashville, and four destroyers. The force arrived to its destination by August the 7th, conducting a really lackluster bombardment of the Japanese facilities because of, well, extreme weather. They had shelled the harbor from about 11 miles away, but failed to inflict any real damage, and thus the Japanese sent no relief force to Kiska, making the operation a complete failure. Luckily for the Allies, as the invasion fleet departed from Koro towards Solomons, they were completely unmolested as Japanese patrol planes were grounded in Rabaul due to, again, bad weather. The Americans would take the Japanese by complete surprise. In the early hours of August the 7th, the invasion force was in position directly west of Cape Esperance when groups separated. The group hitting Tulagi was designated Yoke while the Guadalcanal group was designated X-Ray. As dawn broke on August the 7th, over at Lunga Point, the men of the 13th Construction Unit awoke and began their breakfast. Their commander, Captain Kane Manzin, expected some staff officers from Rabaul to visit that very day to discuss when aircraft could arrive to Guadalcanal. For weeks, he alongside Lieutenant Commander Norinaga Aokomura of the 11th construction unit had been arguing vehemently that the island needed air units. Okamura's men were mostly lazing around in bed by 6.14 a.m. when suddenly they heard the roar of shells. From his perch on Guadalcanal's mountainous spine, Martin Clemens, a coast watcher, gazed in joy at the enormous allied fleet assembling to make an amphibious assault. 
It was the heavy cruiser Quincy that fired the first salvo that would rake Lunga Point. As the other warships began their barrage, 16 Wildcats from Wasp swooped down to destroy all seven of the large Kawanishi H6K4 Mavis flying boats and eight Nakajima A6M2 float zeros moored at Halavo. At 6.51 a.m., the X-ray group reached their transport area just off the shore. Boats swung out, and cargo nets cascaded down the sides of the transports as marines descended into the landing craft. They landed on a 1,600-yard white strip of white sand, designated as Beach Red, approximately 6,000 yards from Lunga Point. At 9.10 a.m., the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, scrambled over the sides of their landing craft and wadded ashore onto Beach Red. They were soon joined by the 3rd Battalion, forming a beachhead. There was no opposition, and the 1st Marines struck out to secure the grassy knoll a bit further inland. Soon the men were probing into the jungle near the mouth of a place called Alligator Creek. But they found no Japanese. Back at the beachhead, a problem was brewing, as landing craft littered everywhere. They had a real bottleneck situation, as the shore party, roughly 300 men from the 1st Pioneer Battalion, were desperately trying to unload the landing craft, as the transports filled them and sent them ashore. There was not nearly enough men to get all the materials properly ashore and secured. Vandegrift had fielded only five infantry battalions to subdue the garrison lurking somewhere on Guadalcanal and he understandably did not have a desire to detach any of those units to go back and help with the supplies. Over on Tulagi, a radio message went out at 6.52 a.m. reporting that 20 or so Allied ships were attacking, and at 8.05 a.m. it proclaimed, We pray for enduring fortunes of war and pledge to fight to the last man. The IGM was shocked by the news coming from the Tulagi garrison. Admiral Yamamoto ordered a decisive counterattack to be made straight away. Vice Admiral Nishizo Tsukahara, commander of the 11th Air Fleet at Tinanen, announced he was flying to Rabaul to assume command of the area and he would bring with him all of Mizawa's air group's Betty bombers. That morning at Rabaul, 32 Bettys, 24 long-range Zeros, 15 short-range Zeros, 16 Vals, four Mavis and two Nakajima J1N1 Irving reconnaissance planes were made ready. They had coincidentally been gathered to perform an offensive against Milna Bay in New Guinea. Rear Admiral Satoyoshi Yamada, commander of the 25th Air Flotilla, required no prompting to take action. He immediately ordered them to change their bomb loads for torpedoes and sent them on the hunt for the Americans. The Bettys took off at 9.30, followed at intervals by the Zeros and Vals. Around 53 aircraft headed south to challenge America's toehold on Guadalcanal. The Bettys and Vals would spearhead the attack. Despite the Coast Watchers' advance warnings, only 24 Wildcats would be stacked over the Guadalcanal landing area to meet the Japanese onslaught. At 1.15 p.m., the Bettys arrived, but luckily for the Americans, heavy clouds hindered their sights, making their bombs cast harmlessly into the sea. Two installments of 18 Wildcats pounced on the Bettys, while their Zero escorts engaged them in dogfights. As the fight raged on, the Wasp and Enterprise sent Wildcats and some Dauntless to meet the enemy. The first clash over Guadalcanal cost 50% of the participating Wildcats. The Japanese lost five Bettys, nine Vals, and two Zeros, managing just one non-fatal hit on a destroyer. The objective of disrupting the landings was a complete failure. The next day, more Japanese aircraft would come to hit them, and in the end, 36 Japanese planes would be destroyed at the cost of 19 American planes, and the USS George F. Elliott, which was set afire when an enemy plane crashed on board and it had to be beached and destroyed by her sister ships. Meanwhile, the first marines had made it a mile from their landing point. They set up a perimeter defense around Alligator Creek in anticipation of a Japanese assault. The attack did not come. On the morning of August the 8th, while the air war was still going on in the landing area, Vandegrift ordered his men to head towards Lunga Point. 
The Marines encountered scant resistance and by the afternoon had found the airstrip deserted. They found three anti-aircraft batteries, ammunition dumps, radio stations, all sorts of construction equipment was all left behind. There were a few dead bodies found amongst abandoned bowls of rice, meat stew, prunes, and abandoned boots. The Marines were baffled as to how the Japanese failed to enact any defense of the airfield. Two Marine regiments would spend their second night in positions around Lunga Point. As darkness developed around the Marines for their second night on Guadalcanal, their situation appeared hmm, well in hand. By the dawn of August the 9th, they would learn these moments were short-lived on Death Island. The situation for Talagi was quite different. Talagi Island was about two miles long and half a mile wide lying just south of Florida Island. Tulagi held a triangle of hills. The southeasternmost was designated Hill 281. The Japanese garrison on Tulagi was a detachment of the 3rd Kure SNLF Marines, 350 men led by Commander Mazaki Suzuki. American reconnaissance indicated the strongest defenses were on the northeastern and southeast beaches. So the Marines selected a 500-yard strip of shore about midway on the southwest side of the island to hit, designated Beach Blue. The Yoke Group had three transports, four destroyers, and a cargo ship anchored just five miles off Beach Blue. General Rupertus's landing force consisted of the 1st Raider Battalion, the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, 2nd Battalion, the 5th Marines, and the 1st Parachute Battalion. Vandegrift had picked his units as they were the best trained and Talagi was expected to be a tough fight. Elements of the 1st Battalion 2nd Marines would take flanking positions on Florida. The 1st Raiders would land on Tulagi, followed up by the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines to seize it. Gavitu and Tanimbogo would be hit by the 1st Parachute Battalion. The Florida group landed near Halida at 7.40am finding no Japanese. At 8 a.m., the raiders grounded offshore on the coral and sloshed onto the beach. The Japanese defenders did not have observation of the narrow blue beach because they were immediately behind it in a heavily wooded area. Companies B and D of Colonel Merritt Edson's 1st Raider Battalion advanced inland steadily without resistance until Company B ran right into an enemy outpost at the former Chinese quarters, a place called Carpenter's Wharf. The remaining companies then followed suit upon the landing, finding no resistance until they reached Tulagi's government station at midday. The raiders formed an arrowhead formation sweeping down the island towards what they called Phase Line A. All four raiders' companies began to find heavy Japanese opposition when they moved beyond Phase Line A, with Company C being fired upon by machine guns southwest of Hill 208. The company commander, Major Kenneth Bailey, was wounded, but his men managed to beat back the Japanese using grenades and small arms. It took them an hour to clear Hill 208 as they faced Japanese tactics that would become the norm in island warfare. The Japanese had constructed dugouts and tunnels within mountainous rocks and coral caves. The Japanese would wait for the Marines to pass by before ambushing them. As the Marines pushed the Japanese towards Hill 281, they were forced to call in a naval bombardment against the hill's southeastern ridge. The result of the intense fighting and naval bombardment was just to push the Japanese into sturdier positions upon Hill 281, so the Marines had to pitch a defensive line and wait it out during the night. Now, During the night, the Japanese launched five fierce counterattacks, trying to drive a wedge between the companies. Despite the best efforts of the SNLF Marines, the American Marine lines did not break that night. By dawn, 26 Japanese were dead within 20 yards of the defensive line. The Marines continued to rapidly surround Hill 281 and its ravine, sweeping across the hill, leaving an enemy pocket at the ravine flanked on three sides. The Marines motored the pocket, and by the afternoon, stormed through the ravine, wiping out all of the enemy resistance. By nightfall on August the 8th, Tulagi lay firmly in American hands. Just a small group of Japanese continued to hide in Tulagi's caves, but they would be hunted down for the next few days. Just 3,000 yards due east of Tulagi are the twin islands of Gavitu and Tanimbogo, joined by a 500-yard-long causeway. Each island is dominated by a hill, 
Gabatuz was a 148 feet hill above the sea named Hill 148. Tanambogos was named Hill 121. The islands are surrounded by coral reef on all three sides, making it very difficult to get ashore. The Japanese garrison was led by Captain Shigetoshi Miyazaki, who was leading 342 men of the Yokohama Air Group operating out of a seaplane base on Gabatu. There were also 144 men of the 14th Construction Unit and 50 men of the 3rd Kure SNLF Marines. Out of his total 536 men, only the SNLF Marines were trained for actual ground combat. The 1st Parachute Battalion was led by Major Robert Williams. Under him was 397 men, making the American invaders outnumbered. The light cruiser San Juan and destroyers Monsent and Chenan bombarded Gavitu as dive bombers from Wasp did as well. Neither did much to harm the defenders, though they did knock out an 80mm gun on Hill 148. The Marines landed in three consecutive waves as the bombardments went on. The first wave was allowed to land unmolested and began to push 75 yards inland as the Japanese rallied around hills 148 and 121. When the following two other waves were churning through the water, the Japanese began to open fire with their machine guns and rifles, causing severe casualties. One out of ten men in the boats were hit. Two staff officers were killed and a battalion commander was wounded, leaving Major Charles Miller to succeed command. The Marines found themselves pinned down in a demolished store just off the dock by heavy fire from 300 Japanese. By 2 p.m., the Marines pushed towards Hill 148 under heavy fire. They had requested aerial support to take the hill and some Dauntless would show up, but late. By 2.30 p.m., they pushed the Japanese off the hill and by 6 p.m. took the Japanese flag down off Hill 148 and replaced it with the Stars and Stripes. The position on Gavitu was obtained, but by no means secured. During their night on Gavitu, the Marines were subjected to night attacks by the Japanese, many of whom swam to Gavitu from Tanambogo, trying to infiltrate their defensive positions. It would later turn out some of these men were laborers just trying to surrender. Still, many Japanese popped out of the dugouts and caves to cause severe casualties upon the parachutists. This all pressed Major Miller to request reinforcements. The request was received by Rupertus, who ordered Company B of the 2nd Marines which had landed on Halita on Florida Island to hit Tanambogo. Captain Crane set out for Tanambogo, being told there was only a few snipers left on the island. They came ashore around 6.45pm when disaster struck. One of their American warships fired a shell that hit a fuel dump illuminating the area and exposing Company B right to the Japanese. Quickly, 240 Japanese, mostly air crewmen, and maintenance personnel from the Yokohama Air Group began to open fire with their machine guns inflicting severe casualties. Out of five, only two boats reached the shore. Crane recognized the untenable situation and he took the rest over to the causeway to Gavitu. Crane's assault failure impelled Rupertus to request reinforcements from Guadalcanal. Two reserve battalions were sent, one to Talagi and the other to Gavitu. The carnage would go on for four days, and in the American eyes, the Japanese fought with astonishing tenacity. Each man battled until killed, and each machine gun crew fought to the last man, usually taking their own lives in the end. The Japanese dugouts and caves had to be cleared out with grenades, which were frequently thrown back at the Marines. The Marines had no flamethrowers or Bangalore torpedoes, and the only tank that came ashore threw its track almost immediately. During the morning of August the 8th, a crew of Marines made improvised pole charges and around noon began to use them on the caves as their fellow Marines sprayed machine gun fire at the mouths of the caves. Only three Japanese would surrender on Tulagi. About 40 swam to Florida Island just to be hunted down later. The Americans sent 2,400 men to attack Tulagi and would have 36 die with 50 wounded, while the Japanese would see over 347 men dead. Another battalion would be sent to reinforce Gavitu and attack Tanambogo, the 3rd Battalion of the 2nd Marines. A tragic bombing incident would kill four and wound eight, alongside the sniping and machine gun fire coming out from Tanambogo. Men were using TNT against the Japanese hiding in the caves and dugouts. 
Eventually, two tanks were landed on Tanabogo with the 3rd Platoon Company M. They split up, one rumbling south and the other east towards Hill 121. One tank got too far ahead of its infantry as it engaged a pillbox. Captain Miyazaki and the remaining officers of the Yokohama Air Group swarmed on top of that tank, disabling it with gasoline and flaming rags. The sole survivor of the tank came out feet first to be beaten up by the Japanese, many of whom were bashing the tank with hammers. Once the lagging infantry got to the scene, there would be over 42 dead Japanese surrounding the tank. By 9pm, Tanaboga was secured, though many Japanese were still hiding in the caves. For the next few days, they would be blasted out. Nearly 1 out of 5 parachutists died, 30 were killed, and 45 were wounded out of the 397. Total marine losses for the Twin Islands reached 70 dead and 87 wounded out of 1,300 men. They had seized 20 prisoners, 15 of which were laborers, who, unlike their brothers on Guadalcanal, actively fought beside the combat troops. The Japanese would see 516 dead on Gavatu and Tanambogo. The American fight for Talagi, Gavatu, and Tanambogo saw them lose 122. For the Japanese, it was 863. The immense struggle was just an appetizer for what island-hopping warfare was going to be like for the rest of the war. I would like to just take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have an entire series dedicated to the life of General Rupertus. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. It was a good start for Operation Watchtower, albeit a horrifying lesson about the amount of casualties the Allies could expect going forward with island-hopping warfare. The Australians on Green Hell and the Americans on the Island of Death by Starvation were only just beginning to see the nightmare before them.